Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, that is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests were continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place was not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. All right, I want to talk about uh, the sanctuary and the reading that we just had. You know that our congregation, our sanctuary is set up in the same direction, not the same dimensions, but the same direction as the tabernacle and the temple. So that the entranceway would be back where that entrance is. And in the uh, area where we have the Lord's Supper table would have been where the big altar is. Uh, Looked kind of like a barbecue, a big brass altar uh, back here that the sacrifices would be put on. And then in this courtyard area, there was also... The uh, labor, also made out of copper, made from the women's mirrors, so that as you wash, you could actually see uh, a reflection in that context. And that was used also after they had burnt the offerings to cleanse before they went into the holy place. Uh, This piece is not part of this podium here, is not part of this tabernacle furniture, but right about this point, is where the first veil would have been. And so they would then enter into the holy place, and the holy place had two pieces of information uh, of furniture that matched it. One was the table of showbread, where the twelve loaves were placed, and the other one was the menorah that gave light to that room. This is where the priests would come, and they would, at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, they would come up to this altar that was outside the second uh, veil, which is where the pulpit is, and they would light incense, and people would pray towards that place, and the prayers would ascend to the Lord as the incense took place. But the book of Hebrews says that this piece of furniture is, corresponds to this room 
which was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. No one entered into there except the high priest on Yom Kippur. And then he would enter with blood, as it says, for himself and for the people. That will become important in a minute. And then he would make atonement. Then he would exit and he would engage in some other rituals that I'll talk about a little later. It's really important to understand that at Yom Kippur, no people come to the temple. They would stay in their places because everything on Yom Kippur is being done for the people, not by the people. In other words, they are not going to be able to bring about their own atonement. God is going to have to do that for them, and He will do that symbolically through the high priest who will enter into that place on Yom Kippur. So that's really important. I'm going to be talking about that. I want us to be able to connect this to the holy days of the spring because Yom Kippur in Christian thinking is what we call Good Friday. That's when the sacrifice took place. But the entrance into heaven took place 40 days later. That's why I'm saying this service actually is a little bit like an ascension service as he enters into the holy place and then he will return because he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So, wanted to keep that in mind. Are there any uh, immediate questions on that? I think you guys are pretty aware of this. We have an advantage at the Disciple Center in that we're very familiar with this furniture. We're very familiar with the context of that because our sanctuary actually reflects what that is. And so it makes it easier for us to understand. Alright, so with that in mind, we're going to move to the high priest himself and we'll begin with that reading. So those readings come from the book of Hebrews, and the first reading comes from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and the word of the Lord says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Moving on to chapter 7, 23 through 28. 3, sorry, 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Yeshua, the apostle and high priest, of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Messiah was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. 
The next one comes from chapter 7, 23 through 28. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Yeshua, on the other hand, because of his continue, he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the Torah appoints men as high priests for who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And then 8, 3 through 6. For every high priest is appointed to offer both girls or Gifts, <laughs> to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy, shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. All right. Now, the high priests of the temple and the tabernacle were Levitical priests. They were appointed under the tribe of Levi, and they were connected to Aaron and to Moses, and they alone were allowed to be the ones who would minister to the Lord in the holy place and in the uh, most holy place. If Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, he does not qualify as a priest. And therefore, he could not, even in his time on earth, he could not enter into that earthly sanctuary. But that sanctuary is simply a shadow and a copy of that which is in heaven. In heaven, there is the true tabernacle, the true temple of God, the real ark of the covenant, the the reality of the myriad of angels and God himself. And Jesus is a high priest of that temple. So that he will enter into that temple to present his offering as a high priest. And because he is a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which is non-transferable, and he lives forever in the context of the resurrection, he is the permanent one and only high priest for all times, and therefore can give a sacrifice that is for all times. So that's really important to keep in mind, as holy as things were on earth, I mean, this is a copy of the copy of the copy of the copy of what was on earth, 
that one on earth, as holy as it was, was a copy of the one that was in heaven. And so, we are uh, able to focus on and to experience a high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to sing together hymn number 348, I Stand Amazed in the Presence of Jesus the Nazarene, but somebody renamed it My Savior's Love. All right, we move to the issue of the blood of the covenants. Nine, eleven through fifteen. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made uh, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Moving down to verse 19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore it is necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place, year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the... But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All right, so the ritual that was done on earth to give the pattern of what's done in heaven started with a high priest. Now this high priest was a Levitical high priest, so he was subject to death and also subject to sin. And therefore, before he ever did anything on behalf of the people, he first had to take a bull. That's why it keeps talking about the blood of bulls and, and, and goats. He had to first take a bull and he had to put his hands on it, confess his sins. They would kill that bull 
And he would then take the blood of that bull from the altar and he would enter into the high place first having to make atonement for himself to put the blood on the mercy seat so that God would forgive him his sins because otherwise he's not a worthy high priest. Now coming back out and he's now atoned for his sins by the blood of that bull. Then he would take the goats. They would take two of them. They would cast lots for them. One for the Lord and one for Azazel. The one for the Lord he would place his hands on and confess the sins of Israel. The people. The sins done in ignorance. This is about unintentionality with regard to sin. He would then take the blood from that one and go into the holy place. And when he got into the holy place... He would put the blood there on behalf of the people. And then when he came out, he would put the blood on all the furniture, making the sanctuary holy. And then he would deal with the second goat. But what Yeshua did was, he dies on the cross. The blood of the covenant he mentions at the Last Supper. That's why the table is the altar in Christianity. It's the Last Supper table. This is the new covenant in my blood. His blood then is going to be uh, sent into the Holy of Holies. The real one in heaven when he ascends on Ascension Thursday. And then Jesus does something no high priest ever did. Instead of coming back out and finishing that, which he will... He sat down at the right hand of his father and has been there as our intercessor ever since. And so this issue of the blood of bulls and goats can never ultimately do it. It was a picture and a type to show us what God would do for real and eternally in the blood of Jesus, which is represented in the Passover and in the communion that we observe. So we're going to sing together, There's Power in the Blood. All right. Now, the high priest is doing that for the people. What are the people doing? Well, that's our next part, the humbling of ourselves to the Lord. Are you reading now? Oh, okay. So, Leviticus sixteen twenty nine to thirty three. This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month, you shall humble yourselves and do not any work, whether the native born or the stranger who lives temporarily among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall humble yourselves. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve and minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall wear the holy linen garments and make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now let's turn over to uh, Matthew 16, verses 24 
through 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory and majesty of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay each one in accordance to what he has done. All right, so if you look at this in Leviticus, the the issue is to um, humble your souls. Don't do any work and humble yourself. Well, the rabbis were asked what that meant. And they said, oh, that's Isaiah, uh, where he talks about the fast. So Yom Kippur is also called the fast, often in the scriptures. Uh, Luke uses that term when he refers to it. And the fast then is going 24 hours, not allowing the the bodily appetites what they want. And many of you uh, fast on Yom Kippur. The reason for that is this text says the native-born, and the stranger who dwells with Israel. That's the Gentile who dwells with Israel. Now, many Christians don't even know when the Day of Atonement is on the Jewish calendar, because as I said, for Christianity, Good Friday is Yom Kippur, and that's the day that is commonly fasted on in the Christian tradition. We tend to do both of those traditions, so many of us will be fasting this uh, Wednesday for Yom Kippur, remembering what happened on Good Friday, and then on Good Friday we will remember what happened in this context. In other words, these are those shadow and substance, those uh, hyperlinks, if you will, between the holy days uh, that's, that's important for us to know. Now, fasting is the shadow, it's not the substance. The substance is self-denial taking up your cross and following the Lord, denying yourself and doing good for others, which is not done to bring about your atonement, but in gratitude for the atonement that has been given. God provides the atonement. In gratitude for that, we take up our cross and follow Jesus in that context. So this notion of afflicting the soul is symbolic when we fast, but every day we need to take up our cross and follow the Lord. And as we do that, we will see Him change our heart and make us more after His own heart. So we're going to stand at this point and do the presentation of ourselves, um, and then we're going to have the prayer of dedication, and then we will sing a song. Lord, do not not enter enter into judgment with us according to our sin. For who, O Lord, could stand before you? But judge us in mercy and grace for the sake of thy Son and his death, for the atonement by his blood, which you have accepted. Grant to us the righteousness of faith and look not upon our sins and our weaknesses. Let us walk before you in obedience 
in gratitude for your great salvation. May our hearts be changed and molded into obedience to you. And now he ever lives to be an intercessor for us. And so we have access to him with our prayers. So our call to prayer comes from Hebrews chapter 4. Did everyone get a copy of the lyric sheet for the next song, Before the Throne? I've got a couple more. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the hearts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a benefit that I think we often take for granted. And that is that we have access to one who, though tempted exactly like us, didn't fall to that. But he knows how much of a struggle it is for us. Boy, when you're struggling with something, you want someone who understands. We have a great high priest who not only made atonement for us, but understands our weakness and frailty. And therefore, when we come to him, he will not cast us out. But he understands and he intercedes on our behalf. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, let's remember that the Father is for us because He sent His Son. The Son is for us because He understands our weakness. And the Spirit is for us because He has given His Spirit to help us so that we will pray and it will be received of God appropriately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. All right. The uh, book of Hebrews, towards its end, says that we ought to be praising Him for all that He does. So our call to prayer comes from Hebrews chapter 13. Okay, so, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11... We are given a story about Abraham, Noah, all the people who have walked this faith before us. And those words then come to a focus in verse uh, 13. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the world. For those who say such things make it clear they're not, they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, 
they would not have they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, at the end of chapter 11, he says about even more the unnamed believers that have gone uh, through this process. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive the promise. But God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this verse gets preached really poorly. Uh, it's sometimes given as if all these people are watching you, so you better do what you're supposed to do. We have this cloud of witnesses. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about this group of people that the writer has just mentioned. That they are all standing around because God is the God of the living, not the dead. Their bodies may be in the cemetery, but they're with God. And if we said to Noah, what is your testimony? He would say, God is faithful. And if we said to Abraham, what is your testimony? He would say, God is faithful. And if we said to Abel, what is your testimony? God is faithful. And right down through there, even Samson, the most unholy, holy guy I ever read about. What is your testimony? God is faithful. Now there are thousands and millions and hundreds of millions, uncountable saints who have gone before us and they're screaming at us. My testimony is God is faithful. So let me tell you, so is mine, but I'm doing it through the flesh, right? I'm struggling with that, but I know he's faithful and therefore I can continue. I can move on no matter what happens because he who was faithful to them and they have given testimony that he's faithful and I'm going to join my voice in testimony that he is faithful. And so when we lose someone, we are not losing them except temporarily. God is gaining them eternally and they're gaining God. And therefore in the face of mourning and in the face of death, we affirm the resurrection because he who promised is faithful. So we're going to stand together and do the mourner's cottage. If you are in the first year of mourning, or you are in the anniversary of one who is mourning, would you stand? And the rest of us will, uh, uh, well, we'll, we'll stand and the rest of you will respond. Okay, so in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we are given a story about Abraham, Noah, all the people who have walked this faith before us. 
And those words then come to a focus in verse uh, 13. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the world. For those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would, not have, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, at the end of chapter 11, he says about even more the unnamed believers that have gone uh, through this process. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive the promise. But God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this verse gets preached really poorly. Uh, it's sometimes given as if all these people are watching you, so you better... Do what you're supposed to do. We have this cloud of witnesses. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about this group of people that the writer has just mentioned. That they are all standing around because God is the God of the living, not the dead. Their bodies may be in the cemetery, but they're with God. And if we said to Noah, what is your testimony? He would say, God is faithful. And if we said to Abraham, what is your testimony? He would say, God is faithful. And if we said to Abel, what is your testimony? God is faithful. And right down through there, even Samson, the most unholy, holy guy I ever read about. What is your testimony? God is faithful. Now there are thousands and millions and hundreds of millions, uncountable saints who have gone before us and they're screaming at us, my testimony is God is faithful. So let me tell you, so is mine. But I'm doing it through the flesh, right? I'm struggling with that. But I know He's faithful. And therefore, I can continue. I can move on, no matter what happens, because He who was faithful to them and they have given testimony that he's faithful, and I'm going to join my voice in testimony that he is faithful. And so when we lose someone, we are not losing them except temporarily. God is gaining them eternally, and they're gaining God. And therefore, in the face of mourning, and in the face of death, we affirm the resurrection because he who promised is faithful. 
So we're going to stand together and do the mourner's Kaddish. If you are in the first year of mourning, or you are in the anniversary of one who is mourning, would you stand? And the rest of us will, uh, uh, well, we'll, we'll stand and the rest of you will respond. All right. There's one more piece to that song that we don't do that I'm going to add because it kind of jumps a little one more step up. So we'll, we'll add that. I just wanted to wait till you guys were on rhythm. So uh, we're there. All right? Well, close. Close enough for jazz, right? That's what they say. All right. I took my bulletin, and so I've got to do the readings. Can I borrow that? Sorry. Uh, I put one in both places, and then I take it anyway. So uh, We're now looking at the judgment in the kingdom. What is happening is, at the sound of the shofar, which we celebrated last week, The Lord will return, the dead in Christ shall rise, and we will be gathered with them as He steps foot on the Mount of Olives, and He establishes the kingdom. And in the context of the kingdom will also be the judgment. The judgment, first of all, the Bema Seat of Christ, where we will receive rewards and uh, loss based on our stewardship on this earth, but the Ultimate judgment is the book of life. And our names are written in the book of life. And that is worth rejoicing. So, we pick up at Acts chapter 1, verse 11, as we look at the kingdom to come. In Acts chapter 1... I had it there. Now it's gone. The disciples say, when are you going to do the kingdom? He says, none of your business. You be witnesses of me beginning at Jerusalem to the far corners of the earth. Then Jesus goes out on the Mount of Olives and he begins to ascend. And as he ascends, he goes up into the clouds and he passes into the heavens. And the disciples are doing this. Right? So an angel appears. A couple of them. They're standing right by him. What are you looking up there for? Right? So here's what they say. You men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, did he just disappear? No, he ascended, went into the clouds. Behold, he comes with clouds, right? And his reward will be with him, and every eye will see him. And there will be people who see him coming going, oh, rocks fall on us, let's go into the caves. But we will be rejoicing when he comes because our loved ones will rise and we will be with him. What a day that will be, huh? And then the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 27, 
Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, with the exception of those who are alive and remain to his coming, uh, after this comes the judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. This is where he comes out in the context of Yom Kippur. With salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly wait him. That's why we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, at the end of the book, is usually the end of the story. But actually, it's not the end of the story. It's the end of this story, and the beginning of an eternal story. In chapter 20, verse 11, of the book of Revelation, the scripture says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every one, according to their deeds. Notice, according to their deeds. There is a judgment of our deeds... But there is not a condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's the hell that we're all afraid of. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Our names are in the book of life. And then John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Because the first one will be passed away. So there's so much about this that we actually need a second service to do that part. We will talk about that in our kingdom service and in our new creation service so that we get that. Um, I am hoping that this has been useful to you and you've seen it kind of in a different way. But we're going to end by singing when we all get to heaven. Now, let me tell you what heaven is. It's not... Heaven in the third heaven. When we all get to heaven, we will be in the throne and the new Jerusalem. So it's about the kingdom and the new Jerusalem, both. That's heaven, and that's where we're going to be. So we're going to sing that. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your words revelation to us the atonement has been paid we are bought with a price and there is nothing we can do to add to it or take away from it so we trust in your grace by faith that we will be saved and we humble ourselves and afflict ourselves to deny what our passions desire to live for you in this life, knowing that even that you will reward us for. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, with your reward with you, as your word says. Amen. All right, we're going to gather the children together. We don't have to wait for them. And we'll bless one another with the blessing of the Lord.
The New Testament version of that, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.